This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm 2020 Hugo finalist for Best Fan Writer Paul Weimer. Uh, hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Trishy Matson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you say Trishy, it's Trish space E, right? Yes, E okay. is for Elkins, my oh, okay. my maiden name. Uh, but it just made uh, uh, in audio. It, it sounded like, like Trishy, Trishy, not yeah. Trishy. Yeah. Hi, Trishy. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, we're talking about Omnilingual by H. Beam Piper. First published in Astounding Science Fiction, February 1957. Uh, I am actually a fairly big H. Uh, Beam Piper fan, which is interesting because I think he has some fans. Um, I, I consider myself one of them, so yes. Yeah, and the thing is, is he's, he's, he's not like first tier. I don't think he gets a mention in the Astounding book, uh, you know, the biography of the uh, magazine. That we did. Uh, last I'm year. trying to remember if they actually ever mentioned him. I mean, he, I know, he might I, be a I footnote. I think they mentioned him once. He might be a footnote. I, He's, yeah. you know, one of the authors who was published in <laughs> Astounding. You know, in the same issue, we have James Blish, uh, of course, John W. Campbell and his articles. <laughs> Aldrich Budras, a Stanley Mullen, who I would say is probably a, a similar stature, a stature as H.B. Uh, Piper, and MCPs. Um, uh, P. Schuler Miller has a article in there as well. So this is a a fairly standard, pretty good issue of Astounding. But I think this story is really interesting to think about as like what stature does it have and what stature had it then? Because I think some people think this is a classic. In fact, they call it that. But I think they might be calling it classic as in old. Um, and then other people think it's sort of not that interesting, and I think it's pretty interesting, but I'm also a little bit close to this. So the reason I say all this is because H. Beam Piper is almost completely public domain. He, he, I think, I'm going from memory, this is a long time ago, I wrote, wrote about him, read about him. Uh, I believe he shot himself in the head in 1964. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, when you're doing copyright renewals, anything after 1963 is uh, published after 1963 is when you start saying basically nothing's going to be public domain after 63. And so he didn't produce anything after 64, right? <laughs> but there was a few things published after his death, but almost everything was published during his life. Um, and so he didn't renew anything, right? It just never happened, um, which means... Gutenberg has a ton, uh, Gutenberg uh, or Project Gutenberg has a ton of his stuff, and it was some of the very first stuff uploaded to uh, Gutenberg's website, and therefore it was some of the very first stuff put up on uh, LibriVox. And so uh, I think we might have an artificial understanding of how popular H. Beam Piper is. So I, I'm very outside. interested. I, I think arts outsized might be a better word than artificial. Yeah. Yeah, but I want to, like, who here hadn't read this before? Put, raise a hand. I hadn't read this story before. Right. I had read uh, Little Fuzzy. Before. Everybody's Everybody knows Little Fuzzy. Yeah, that's sort yes. of his big, his famous book, right? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, and what did you think of it? As a, where would you place it in the? Is it a, a classic like uh, something by Asimov that everybody knows, or is it a minor piece? Oh well, what is a classic? <laughs> Good question. You know, it's um, is it uh, deserving of respect? Absolutely, I loved the story, mm. um, just for the basic story idea, and also for the progressive elements in mm-hmm. it. Oh, um, wait, wait, wait! <laughs> I just realized what you're saying by progressive uh, is probably not the same thing as what I was thinking is progressive. Instantly when you said it, um, um, so please define. Okay, it has a uh, female scientist as the pro- protagonist, mm-hmm. um, and there's no romance subplot. You know, it's just her solving a problem, mm-hmm. um, and it has uh, uh, a mixed nationality crew, and at least one of the people in the team of scientists is multiracial. Um, and, Turco-German. Right, yes. Um, and, uh, uh, well, I guess those are the most progressive elements mm. of it. But, you know, just the team of different nationalities funded by the governments of Earth to go exploring history. Um uh, so many things to like about mm. this story. I was thinking uh, progressive when uh, as like like the it, it sort of it has a problem and then it goes through the progress of it. You that know, like, too. And I also and like that's a really cool she, aspect, right? Yes, absolutely. And she's not the only one who goes through a character arc in the story either. Um, uh, the professor, uh, um. What's his name? The Turco-Germanic... Salim Von... Salim Von Olmhorst, right. Uh, He goes through a character arc, too, from, you know, uh, being an old Hittite expert who just comes on the expedition to get it started and who doesn't want to learn new tricks and who is poo-pooing Martha's work, um, to being excited about getting his hands dirty in, you know, a, a new field of study and uh, admitting that he was wrong. So, mm. you know, um, there are there are a lot of different aspects for, for you know, a reasonably short story. Uh, there's a lot to get interested in, mm-hmm. a lot of perspectives. And I'll have I can have more to say about that, too, but I'll let somebody else talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Will, had you read any H.B. Piper before this? This is actually the only H. Bean Piper story I had read before, so I've read it twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, I get the sense that uh, Piper wasn't uh, a classic uh, during his lifetime, but I feel like after he died, he got picked up by people. Because, mm. um, I mean, Fuzzy went through a round of paperbacks. Huge, um, huge for a no-name, right? If this guy's yeah, a no-name, yeah. he's huge. I think I think he's best understood as like um uh like he's like a cult author, right? Like he's like somebody who there's going to be people who are really into his stuff, so he has a place um yeah. uh in the canon uh for that reason, but that doesn't make him so much different than a lot of other people who are more commercially successful, mm-hmm. right? Well, I I I'm thinking like who who would be similar like for me, I, I, I really like H.B. and Piper stuff, and there's he, he's got a novel I want to read um, that's not genre – well, it's a different genre. It's called Murder in the Gun Room. Um, and, you know, you can see his obsessions in this story with uh, 
not just archaeology, but there's there's actually a few guns in the story. But everybody's smoking all the time, you know. Like <laughs> it's very uh, it's very. The Japanese much... woman has such little hands, and like he comments on it yeah. over and over mm, again. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, oiling the gun. The yep. Japanese woman with the little hands <laughs> has right. the gun. That's right. I kept flinching every time they talked about Martha smoking while she was handling the artifacts and everything, yeah. because of course now we know that's that's a big no no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, okay. It's a archaeology has gone a little, little has gone a while since. Well, I just think of how much you know people don't smoke like everywhere all the time, constantly now, right? They used to smoke right. in like profs used to smoke in in the auditorium, you know, while they're lecturing, so. And you know the pipes and all. Uh, it's it's a it's just a cultural shift. But um, I was thinking, like, who is a similar stature in my mind that no not a lot of other people have read? Um, there's a guy named Mac Reynolds. I I'm sure Will knows about him because I probably mentioned him. I I really dig Mac Reynolds, and almost none of his stuff gets any attention. Um, but he never had a, a breakout hit the way well. Not uh, sort of a generational breakout hit like uh, Little Fuzzy. Um, and I guess Little Fuzzy got another boost when uh, John Scalzi did, rewrote it or whatever. Yeah, John Scalzi yeah. rewrote it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so we got a re-release of the original public domain book. And there's uh, did or did he write a sequel or did he do both? Hey. I can't remember. It, it, I think it, it they was called a, it a reimagining. I've only read yeah. the original. Yeah, it was like a reboot. It was it was re- it was basically a reboot, right? Of- yeah, because it's public domain. You can you can do that. Um, and <laughs> I wish more people would do that uh, with more books. There's uh, gives attention to the original. Um, maybe gets a reprint. Maybe we get a new piece of art for it. Um, but uh, Omnilingual, I don't think has the the. Because it's not a novel, I don't think it can ever get the stature than it. Well, not ever, not in our lifetimes. Probably get the stature of a rebooted novel. Um, yeah, it's just well, short I think stories it really don't works sell well as a short story because oh, yeah. it explores the basic thought of the problem that she's solving mm-hmm. really well. And although there are a few, you know, there are other threads woven through, it has a really nice tight focus on that. And mm-hmm. if you expanded it to a novel. Hey, you just have to, you know, bring in other problems to solve, and, and I, I just think it really—it's a nice, uh, the perfect length as it is. And and this is actually a very good example of why Astounding isn't total shit, um, because this is <laughs> no. There's a lot of shit in Astounding, and mostly, mostly it's like it's just like, God damn it, get over the thing with telepathy. It's just not a thing. Okay, <laughs> I know he didn't know that at the time. But come on, man. We're done with it. It's it's finished. So I, I made you say that, Jesse. No, man. I've been re- I, I'm, I've always had this problem with astounding and and uh, you know. You like, think telepathy can't travel in time? <laughs> Temporal telepathy. Oh God. <laughs> Listen, man. I do not know the answer to that, but I'm pretty sure that the John W. Campbell, are, like he he just he was a speculator. But the thing is, is what he purchased when he bought this story from H. Bean Piper was exactly what he was arguing people. He's, it's like, I want a story about science, right? I want a story about science. And what did H. Bean Piper gave him? A story about science. Now, it isn't, mm-hmm. you know, it isn't chemistry. 
And it isn't really archaeology, although that's the fun sort of setup for it. What it is, it's about linguistics and how they did, you know, convert. I mean, we get it right in the story, how we got uh, Linear B and how we got uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphs, right? And how we got, and of course, his spin on it, the answer, is like, of course, it's a perfect example of, you know, what's common between every species in the universe. We all share the same atomics, we all have the same elements and if you can work that out then you have a way of connecting so it's so cool uh that we're we're laid out with the problem uh we see you know oh well this could be that and yeah how do you confirm that but when they actually are reading the table and they're reading martian i think this is like on the level of tolkien uh with linguistics he's doing something very special here. Absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah, this mm-hmm. is a masterpiece. Um, oh, for for like, what it's aiming at, it is absolutely yeah. a masterpiece. It's a hard SF masterpiece about social science. <laughs> yes, and yep. if you can have hard SF, um, <laughs> which is supposed to be about physics and chemistry and gravitation and, you know, and uh, not biology and not uh, sociology and not linguistics... Uh, I think he's getting pretty close to doing exactly that. It's it's a hard, soft SF, right? It it, it is. Um, I have a question for all of you. Have you? Oh, because I was thinking about I was thinking about this book as I was listening to the story again. Because the last time I read the story, I had not read it, but but I have read it subsequently. Have any of you read the the Riddle of the Labyrinth by Marguerite Fox? Mm-mm. No. It's it came out. Uh, I have the page up here. It came out about five years ago. It's basically the story of how Linear B got cracked. Mm. And, and I was, as, as, as listening to stories like, oh, yeah, this is I mean, <laughs> I mean because, because that was news. That was relative news at the time the story came out. Like, oh, we finally cracked this thing after by a massive amount of work by uh, Arthur Evans and Alice Colbert to actually crack crack the language. And. I mean, this kind of reminds me a little bit of um, of Philip um, K. Dick in that way. Like he, he I, I can see Piper seeing this like, I, oh, great. I can put this into a story and just going ahead and doing it, except setting it on setting it on a on a human Martian civilization instead. But and just adding the extra doll like, well, there's well, there's no there's nothing to tie it to. There is no Rosetta Stone. There is no Hittite double hit tight script to actually tie into so how can you do it and he comes up with his answer of the periodic table as mm-hmm. so so yeah I, I do recommend if you do want a good nonfiction read about how linear b actually was solved the the riddle of the labyrinth by marguerite fox it's a really 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 good book good. yeah mm-hmm. um uh, one of the uh, many little bits of uh, that that's one of the other cool things like if you see poor Will. I don't think he knows. He grew up with the internet, right? Um, I got the internet maybe when I was in like fifth grade, and there wasn't like good stuff on the internet <laughs> you know, until I was in college. Oh, with, oh, you what do you mean by good stuff? Guy. What are we talking? What I mean pornography? Like, what, what are you take, talking about? I, I take that back. I take that. What I mean is the internet. I inhabited Web 1.0, uh, like you know, for most of my childhood, and like. <laughs> 
YouTube didn't come out till I was like in college. Oh, there was good stuff on the internet before YouTube. Trust me. <laughs> I, I'm sure there the, was. The Lurker's Guide I, to Babylon Five. To... Come on, man. Yeah, the Lurker's Guide to Babylon Five. I had a website in the early night since going back to the early nineties. So yeah. So uh, the important part is, is Will never even if even if Will and the young whippersnappers of this world have have if they've grown up with even web 1.0 they don't understand the amazing thing it was to be able to talk to a person who knew a ton of shit um pre-internet so like the only idea about that it's really interesting The, the only people i knew who knew a ton of shit before uh the internet like New, uh, were uh, like you could have a conversation with them in real time about stuff that happened, you know, a long time ago. Were people who read a lot of books, and they were relatively rare people, and they still are, right? Obviously, but like I had an uncle who read tons of science fiction, and I could talk to him like about Wilhelm the Second, and like. Who's Wilhelm II? He'd tell me. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then we have that conversation, you know, three weeks later about something else. And um, he's, he'd tell me about Albert Speer. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, who's that guy? Right? Now, why do I bring this up? Because this is what H.E.M.E. Piper is. Um, if, you, if you were a reader of Astounding, if you were reading Astounding, you would be getting basically info dumps about all sorts of stuff. Physics and chemistry and uh you know technologies and the history of technologies it's like it, 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 the equivalent is it's like imagine james burke the guy from connections was uh-huh. was in your family and you could have conversations with them uh, that guy is super useful cuz he's basically like the internet you could type in a query you say hey what's that story you were saying about this and he could rattle off a bunch of information that wasn't, you know, just from a Wikipedia entry. It's from their brain because they read a book a long time ago. And that's really rare. Like, and so the example of this that comes up in the story is the, they talk about what if uh, the Martians came to the planet Earth and they found a picture of Kaiser Wilhelm in exile um, Mm, chopping chopping wood, wood, right? They would say, what's the caption underneath say? It says, man chopping wood, right? (laughs) Not Kaiser Wilhelm in exile. (laughs) And so we have a language problem. But the thing is, is that story is packed with information. Like the fact that there is a picture of Kaiser Wilhelm who only had one good arm chopping wood in France (laughs) uh, doesn't tell you the whole story. Like he's from a long line of Kaiser's. That uh, he's in exile because of Nazis, and you know World War One, and uh, his mustache, and he's related to the Queen, and all this stuff, right? Like none of that is put into that picture or that that description. And so, what I really dig about this story is that it it's like they just discovered the Martian internet, and they can't figure out how to type in queries. Right <laughs> now, if we can just figure out how to type in queries and what questions to ask, all our answers will be unlocked. And uh, honestly, what this story is really about is I realized when I was listening to it, I didn't realize it the first time I read it, but I realized was uh, 
today and I guess probably in the shower this morning, I'm like, oh, my God, this story is kind of about me. Because what I do is I scan magazines <laughs> and then I try and come up with a picture and an explanation for why things are happening the way they are. Now, generally, the magazines I'm scanning are in English, right? And the magazines I'm looking through are in English. And the process, the processes between, you know, it, what I can share with people and what is available. Like they don't, the great news is because all the Martians are dead 50,000 years ago, they don't have to deal with the copyright problems. But, uh, you know, like what does the title of this magazine mean? And one of the ones that's mentioned, if anybody got to listen to the audio drama, it's slightly different. Okay, good. Uh, it, it's slightly different in the, um, in the audio drama. They change a, they change a few things, but uh, one of the things they do in this story is she, they don't know if this magazine that she's got is is a uh, metallurgy magazine or a science magazine, science journal, or sexy stories. Right? In the audio, um, uh, sorry, not in, in yeah, in the audio drama, they change the title to uh, "Spicy Adventure Stories." Um, mm-hmm. And the thing is, is guess what I was scanning yesterday? <laughs> spicy adventure stories. I was going through spicy adventure stories. And the thing <laughs> is, is there's a. It's interesting. There's a ton of magazines that have spicy in the title. There's some that are just spicy stories, and then there's spicy mystery, and there's spicy this and spicy that. Right? I really like the spicies because they're fun. <laughs> but uh, the one weird thing about spicy, uh, spicy adventure stories, as a particular is that Spicy Adventure Stories has a dash between Spicy and Adventure, whereas almost all the other ones do not. And if you think about what that linguistically means, if you have Spicy Mystery Stories, those are sort of separate units, right? Spicy, adjective, mystery, adjective, stories, right? So now we have stories that are spicy and have mystery. (laughs) <laughs> Whereas if you have spicy adventure stories, with spicy adventure being one compound, and stories, you have the adventures are spicy, <laughs> which is slightly different than having spicy, space, adventure stories. But what does it linguistically mean? It's really hard to point it out, but I think it's a thing. <laughs> You know, like I was like, should I just rename this in my catalog of all the issues of Spicy Adventure I have? Some of them were were no no dash, and I'm like, well, which is it? And I checked, and they it never changed. It was always Spicy Dash Adventure, and I think that that is sort of exactly like, well, why did it have that? Like, for example, a really great magazine. Um, if we were trying to figure out why it's called that. Is called Famous Fantastic Mysteries. There's no mystery stories in it. It was never a detective magazine. It was always fantastic, right? But there's another meaning of mystery. <laughs> mystery mm. as in mystery cult or mystery as in... Marvels. Um, yeah, it's yeah. something amazing, right? And so it it has sort of that double, and then uh, there's a very similar magazine that eventually got merged into it called uh, uh, Fantastic Novels, and Fantastic Novels didn't only have stories. And what's the word novel mean, right? <laughs> um, uh, did you guys know what the what, why novels are called novels? We read them all the time because they're a new kind. They were a new thing <laughs> five hundred years ago, right? 
Although my favorite one like this is a linguistic sort of one. I have to teach stu- well, when when there's work. I have to teach students uh, essay writing, right? All the parents want me to teach them essay writing, and I think this is hilarious because nobody knows what the word essay means. <laughs> an essay is an attempt, and an right, essay, essay is a try. Essay something, yes, right. to try. Like, that's right. And so, well, to try and do what exactly? Well, you know. Write an essay. <laughs> so just Jesse, it's to tr- trying to communicate a thought just, or a yes. series of thoughts. And that's why, hey, Jesse. Why does why does Yoda not write essays? <laughs> uh, grammatically, <laughs> I think it's an issue. Do or do not. There is There's no, no try. try. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> All right. I Sorry, see it. I got it. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a try. It's an attempt. So uh, what I like about this is it gives you the actual, like uh, uh, very recently um, a patron, one of our, Scott Scott, uh, recorded the patron thing at the end of the shows and uh, and, and then Paul went and did a patron of it, which is kind of maybe incestuous since he's on the podcast so much, but thank you very much for being incestuous, Paul. It helps me support. This so that we can continue to do this podcast. So it's not incestuous. Well, it I'm, feels I'm incestuous. Be a but... too, so you know it's, it's not unheard of. So I, uh, my mom insisted I do the Patreon thing. So I sent, uh, I, I, I did it, and I, I put one up at a higher one. I don't know. You know, there's more than one level. Higher and tier. somebody did it, and I'm like, what? Okay, that's cool. So, um, I, <laughs> thank I w- you to that person. Yes. <laughs> um, he's in Australia and he's a cool guy. Anyways, he, uh, he, he was, uh, studying German, right? Uh, as a, as a adult studying, learning German. I'm like, oh, that's hard. Cause I did it as a teen and I did not do well, <laughs> but, um, I have a science fiction ma- or a weird fiction magazine from Germany. And I tried I, with the help of a German friend, I translated one of the poems that's in this weird fiction magazine that came out like 1919 uh, called uh, Der, Der Orchid Garden. The Orchid Gar- Garden. Um, and damn, translating German poetry into English poetry, kind of hard. And that was one poem, right? This whole issue and the whole run of that magazine is available and scanned. This is a known language, right? These are modern languages. They're compatible with each other, right? We have lots of languages in common. So doing the Martian, that is a project. This is like a dream project. And that's why I love some of the characters. Are oh, I'm in it for the politics. I want to be famous. And the other, guy, the other characters are like, no, you know what? This is what I want to do. This is what I am now. I'm the guy, I'm a Weinbaum guy, or I'm a Martian uh, metallurgy guy. <laughs> they, found a me- they found meaning in, in discovery, right? That's why this is such a good story. And it, it's ironic, they, in, in this story they mention uh, the Dar Harappans as being something they haven't translated yet, and 50 years later, there's still no consistency on how to translate that, hmm. that mm-hmm. script. So we still don't know what the Indus civilization people actually said in their language. We still have not cracked that code. We need to have more digs to dig up more stuff and find a equivalent tab. But but they but they were so isolated. There is, I mean I mean it's a problem. It's it, it, I mean it's a whole problem. I mean you know, what 
what bridge is there to something else that you can have that can actually use? It's it's I mean, linear B was really, really difficult because there was so little to actually connect it to anything. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a continual problem. Um so I so I know Will hasn't read any other Piper and Trish, you had what other Piper you've read? Nothing? A little fuzzy. Well fuzzy. So Jesse, have you have you read uh, Lord Calvin of Other One? No, that is, uh, I think, in an ace double, isn't it? Um, probably. Actually, I have read that. Um, oh, it's gosh, an ace. a long time it's not ago. An ace I, he went. He was like he went back in time to an alternate well, Pennsylvania. He, didn't go back, with, he, he went. He went sideways in time. Actually, right, sideways. To, to, yeah. to, to use the Murray Leinster term. Yes. A, into, into an alternate Pennsylvania where the Indo-Europeans colonized the United. Uh, North America, basically, it's all feudal kingdoms. But he knows how to make gunpowder, and he knows where the mine veins are to go. <laughs> yep, yep, he, he knows that he all needs. that stuff. Yep, so he gets to he get he gets to marry the princess and do all sorts of things. Um, so that until until uh, Scalzi rewrote Little Fuzzy, the the biggest quote unquote rebooting of Piper that I'd seen was basically Jory Pennell and. Uh, Got the name of the editor, right? Basically, writing a few sequels to Lord Calvin. Now, unfortunately, it looks like that one is one of the few that was published after his death. Yeah. So yeah, it's sixty-five, and yeah, yeah, it's that's a that's a pity that is in 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 copyright because I I because it's 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 a it's a lot of action, a lot of fun, but also like like how do you make gunpowder? Oh, here's how you make gun. <laughs> no, he <laughs> was a gun out. guy for sure. I mean, that's what that book um, Murder in the Gun Room, it, it's sort of specializing in his his his, uh, his his hobbies. That's the other cool thing about him is he's kind of a like, I, I remember reading his biography or you know, Wikipedia entry, something like that years ago, and he was like a night watchman so he's reading all night Right, he's writing and reading all night while he basically does his rounds. And yeah, I thought. Sorry, go, go on. for it. I thought one of the most interesting meta things about this story is realizing that um, H.P. Piper was a self-taught guy mm-hmm. who never went to university. But yet, I felt like his academia, his grasp on that was really good. He, you know, Absolutely. he had the shifting loyalties and rivalries, and another the, reason um, not to go to university. The yeah, <laughs> the, yep. the attempts to grab credit, yep. and you know, who's the detail person versus who's the uh, go talk to the cameras person. I thought uh, he did just a great job of mm-hmm. representing all, all of that kind of thing in the story. And he has, unlike, uh, and, and I'm being uncharitable here, unlike uh, his editor, <laughs> John W. Kemp, he really does have a good grasp on what science is. And you, f- mm-hmm. you even feel that in, in Little Fuzzy, right? The original, uh, the court case, he kind of has a pretty good grasp on how a, even if it's not, you know, a very formal, <laughs> modern uh, version of our uh, ling- law system works. I guess we should turn to the lawyer here, but uh, my memory. Well, I haven't read Little Fuzzy. So, oh, you haven't uh, read Little Fuzzy? Okay. You yeah, should... he's only read Omnilingual. So oh, yeah. okay. Well, you should definitely read Little Fuzzy because it's, it's a good, it's a fun book. 
Um, I I remember writing a review of it at the time saying, you know, this guy's a good writer. And yeah, he makes some grammatically questionable choices. I'm sure if he was in school, they would have yelled at him for, for making sentences like this. But I don't care. Because um, it's very, good. He's a very action-oriented writer is it first is that people always do i mean i mean people always doing things in the story and in his other stuff there's not a lot of staticism it's a, it's a very tight it very it's almost modern it's a very dynamic approach to his prose writing which i think is a reason why it still holds up today it doesn't it doesn't feel solid and stolid like some other fiction from the fifties where you basically have walls of words and people describing things. He here people are doing stuff and bickering and arguing and uncovering things. And it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a very vivid modern prose that I really, really dig. Yeah. yeah and even when they are having conversations, often they're doing other things at the time, at the same time, like, yeah, uh, Sachiko will be cleaning uh, her gun, <laughs> chipping away the, the yeah, magazine. You know, she'll be assembling the jigsaw, micro jigsaw puzzles of mm-hmm. the text fragments. And that's a that's exa- also a very scanny. Uh, so I, I just did a thread earlier this week before I read this this book again. I'm like, you know, here are some of the terms that we use when we're talking about why you know you need to scan, and one of them is like. The paper just falls apart. Like uh, it's it's full of acid, and it it any exposure to oxygen, it just like lets that paper just start crumbling. It crumbles from the outside in, and it's called chipping, right? <laughs> and it's like, wow, that yeah. The reason you, you were missing this part of the page is because, and like I like a lot of times, what I'm doing is I'm like actually replacing letters from uh, from things that are missing using other letters on that same page, you know, like I need a capital B, so I copy and paste it over and clean it up, and and then sometimes we don't know what the actual word there is, and I have to go try and find another version of the book later on, and and sometimes it, that doesn't exist, so it, it's it. Uh, what I realized when reading this book, uh, I didn't realize it at the time I read it originally, years and years and years ago, is that Really, I did what I always wanted to do as a kid. I did become an archaeologist. It's just not the normal kind, right? It's like basically like this kind where they're basically restoring texts. And restoring texts from a yeah, old sc- They're scanners, right? They don't even know what they're scanning. They don't know what it means. They don't know, but they know that it's important. And, and Martha at least has faith that someday someone will figure out what it means. Abs- and that's kind of like how I, I, I people say you read all those six thousand. No, of course not. <laughs> I don't read all well, well, most of them, but I've looked at every single page. And the reason <laughs> I've looked at every single page is I had to to make sure it it works out okay, right? Um, and that's hundreds of thousands of pages. But the thing is, is that that process is not only for me and my own discovery. It's because I want to make this more accessible for other people because it's a treasure that we all need to be uh, have access to in the same way that, you know, denying somebody access to the Internet is is like a, a crime, right? Yeah, there's there's problematic stuff and hate speech and all sorts of mean assholes and lies and all sorts of stuff. But you need that information. You need it preserved. You need it all out there for for scholars of every kind 
you know, amateurs and uh, the ones who want to just take credit for other people's work and, you know, enrich themselves publicly. That It doesn't matter. We need to preserve that information. And that's what they're doing there. It's so weird to think, like, why are they, all these space marines on Mars? There's nobody there to fight, <laughs> right? Why are they cleaning their guns? There's nobody yeah, there to that, fight. This is the, the post-war buildup. It, it, uh, well, it, it totally a- makes me think... It totally makes me think that, uh, and I don't know this for a fact, that he was in World War II and he was one of those guys who was left in Europe afterwards, you know, like 1946 to 49. Mm, and he's yeah. sitting there because he's at a base. He's he's doing sort of managerial work rather than, um, you know, fighting work. But you're in the army and that's that totally feels like what he was doing in this book it feels like it's in that situation they even got the recovery you know there all these destroyed buildings and if you look at the art in the uh, in the original publication the buildings look kind of like european buildings you know some of them it's like that look that could be in london right and now it's not described that way in the story but on page 24 that that you know there's a collapsed building um and uh, the other thing I noticed in this, a second pass-through today um, is that there was a Martian life form. And I'm, right. I, uh, uh, there was a, a... Mammal. A mammal, and later on, uh, one, somebody shot a, a bird-like creature. Mm-hmm. So there was still life on Mars. Yeah, and there... Just not it's, civilization. It, it's a bigger project than just the, the, the people we're seeing in this space. There's a lot mm-hmm. more people, and they're saying more people are coming. So it is, it's like they mobilized, you know, the armies of Earth. This is sort of the leftovers. Out, and uh, my understanding is this is in a series. Uh, it's the first in a series or something like that, Federation well, series. Um, well, the Omnilingual kind of sits at the edge of two, two works of it. It, it sits on this tarot future history, which is basically it's a future history kind of like Asimov where mm-hmm. or um, – Heinlein. Or, or Heinlein or Paul Anderson, where you basically Earth rises into a interstellar dominance and falls and rises and falls again. It sits on that. It sits on that time. It also sits on his paradigm, which basically is his civilization that gains the ability to go across timelines. Which Lord Calvin, the other one, is is tied to because basically the reason why Lord Calvin winds up in another world is because he accidentally winds up in one of their ships and gets dumped off on that other Earth. And it turns out that that we find out in the Paratime universe that man originally came from Mars. We don't see it in this story, but it turns out that the original origins of man are basically from Mars, came to Earth, and in different timelines, different ha- things happened. Either they became they remembered everything from Mars and became the Paratimers, or they civilization completely collapsed and basically had to build up again from savagery which is basically timelines like us mm-hmm. so so this story really sits at the keystone of a couple of his different series of stories which is another reason why i like it so much because you can go in a couple different ways from here into other stuff of his if you wanted to mm-hmm. i want to um, go for it go for it well um you know another figure that uh, uh you know uh you all can make fun of me for this because it's like an obvious thing for me to say uh, another figure that H. Beam Piper is like uh, reminding me of across all these different kinds of stories and about like the things that he's obsessed with uh, is Philip Jose Farmer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he's yeah. got the obsession with linguistics. Um, he's kind of just this everyman who, like, he, like, read a bunch of books, but mm-hmm. he doesn't, like, he uh, hasn't been able to actually pursue a life in any of these fields that he's interested in. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the plots you're describing uh, with the, the different timelines is really similar to this uh, book he has, Two Hawks from Earth. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yeah. indeed. That's a, that's a really insightful connection there, yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, this uh, guy who is, um, I forget uh, which of the Indian nations he's from. He's a bomber pilot for the U.S. in World War II. Uh, he gets uh, shot down, uh, and he finds himself in this Europe that's uh, uh, dominated by uh, American Indian cultures. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 because because in, because in Piper's Lord Calvin, other when the Indo-Europeans come to the come to North America and conquer it. In Two Hawks from Earth, it's it's the cultures that would have become the Native Americans instead go west and colonize Europe and England and stuff. And so he's really confused. It's like, yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. So um, yeah, I think there's some uh, like simpatico qualities between H. Beam Piper and Philip Jose Farmer. I think like. Uh, H. Beam Piper, probably a better craftsman just based solely on this story. Mm. Uh, but uh, the, uh, you know, of course, Farmer was a lot more commercially successful because he uh, longer did, career. did his own life. Yeah. yeah. Longer career. That's also a, an interesting uh, comparison because a lot of, uh, a fair number of things that Philip Jose Farmer did was repackaging Pulp Heroes in his own writing um and of course scalzi repackaged a uh, little fuzzy so that's just a kind of fun um <laughs> uh uh parallel there mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um what will, you, will, you will you will you will love little, little fuzzy uh, sorry oh i was just gonna say will's gonna love little fuzzy because oh, i'm, yeah, I'm yeah, understanding yeah. i'm understanding will pretty well and if it's if it's cutesy and and uh, fun and interesting um he's totally there <laughs> and anthropological like if we combine like the anthropological yep. elements with the like cartoon elements that's and, like... and it's a court case like that's you know measure of the man star trek thing where, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where well, you know or, are or, these or, or creatures jerry was yeah yeah highline's jerry was a man also yeah. in the same tradition uh, who is right in and jerry people is a man thinking that is, they know about mon- something when in fact they're missing crucial information and how important perspectives are what's uh, who who is the jerry and jerry was a man it's been so long since i read that heinlein he, he was he was basically a constructed being i mean i mean there's a whole bunch of a bunch of like he was like a, he was basically basically an intelligent golem okay. that gets, that gets created that's cool yeah, so it, it's a court case basically. Uh, that's the plot, um, and the defendant is basically uh, the hyper chicken from uh, Futurama. Oh no, the defense lawyer. You know, you know who I'm talking about. Well, don't tell me you haven't seen that. <laughs> You're so young. I, I think I uh, uh, the Futurama episode I'm thinking of is the one where they find the planet with the intelligent chicken nuggets and are like eating them. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, the poppers, yeah, those are good. To, no, that's, that's like not the one. Hi, I'm just—he just says, "I'm a—I'm just a simple hyper chicken from Eroticon Seven, and my defendant—he's—he's like—he's Kentucky Colonel. He's Foghorn style. Leghorn. He's Foghorn Leghorn <laughs> as a defense attorney. 
<laughs> hyper That's chicken funny. lawyer. Uh, what's his name? The hyper chicken is a simple alien from the backwoods asteroid. <laughs> frequently seen in Futurama. <laughs> he's my favorite lawyer. He's a, he's like uh, Clarence Darrow, but a chicken. <laughs> I, I, I support him, I think. <laughs> Anyways. I should watch more Futurama. Oh, dude, it's, like, it's, full, of, it's full of science fiction. It, it is, in fact, a science fiction TV show. <laughs> no, but, like, not in a way, like, like uh, I don't want to poop all over Picard, but Picard is not a science fiction TV show. It's a show that has, you know, it uses the trappings of science fiction, whereas Futurama is... It's like the what they want to explore is like here's a concept uh, underground chuds right um, these are mutants what would it be like to you know be like that and then they do comedy as well right or they have you know the time travel episode or they go to a planet where all the men are are little tiny things and the women are giants right and they're exploring all the tropes of science fiction and I think more than anything that killed. Futuramas, they kind of ran out of stuff to do because they did robots and they did, uh, you know, I mean, the whole premise is basically a ripoff of the first science fiction books, right? Where a guy from the past goes to the future and. I guess Fry is Buck Rogers. Well, yeah, but Buck Rogers is <laughs> um, is uh, earlier. What's the book I'm thinking of, Paul? You know the one. Uh, it's called uh, Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. Looking Backward by Bellamy, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, but, like, it's, like, um, like, the opposite premise of Looking Backward. Like, you go to the future, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. like, better than it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, and that's that idea of, you know, it, in, so we are fry in that viewpoint. We're, we're, we're viewing, it's just a great show. I, I loved it. I I mean I really like Disenchanted too. Uh, I know a lot of people don't seem to like it the way. Uh, I th- maybe it's serial. It's less serialized and more. I don't know. But is that Disenchanted? Matt Groening as well? Yeah, it's Matt Groening, and it's on. Uh, it's a Netflix show. One of the few Netflix huh. shows that's good. I think. Um, it, it's it plays with the tropes of uh, fantasy in and you know, <laughs> elves and magic and stuff. It's it's good stuff. Funny. Very enjoyable. Anyways. So, okay. so I, I wanted to touch back on what Will was saying about H-Beam uh, Piper maybe being a better craftsman than Philip Jose Farmer. Um, I love how language shifts in the story. Um, the, uh, the beginning paragraph is a very lyrical passage. Martha Dane paused, looking up at the purple-tinged copper sky, uh, tonight, some of the dust would come sifting down from the upper atmosphere to add another film to what had been burying the city for the last 50,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then, you know, so, so there's some very beautiful language at the beginning, but a lot of the prose of the uh, story, it, you know, it's it can be very businesslike, too, just mm-hmm. getting through the conversations. But, you know, there aren't, isn't any weird phrasing there's nothing that rings uh strange um the descriptions i there are a couple of repeated descriptions but for the most part it's um you know it it makes things immediate mm-hmm. and uh very present and i i really uh 
enjoy just the reading the words of the story <laughs> along mm-hmm. with the along with the plot. Well, he's a he's a he's he is very craftsman like, and I think like even though honestly, I, I like Philip Jose Farmer, but I think he he was more fanboy <laughs> um, than you know craftsman. Absolutely, and so he oh, has. Yeah. The, and and I yeah. think he spent less time on most stuff than mm-hmm. than it seems like. Well, like, he was supporting a. Unlike H. Beam Piper, he was like supporting a family. Like, yeah. So Jose Farmer's like a more stable. Like, like he's more stable than H. Oh, H. Yeah. Beam Piper, right? Of like, course. Sadly, yes. Oh, yeah. He I'm put out be... a tremendous amount of work, <laughs> and, and yeah. a lot of it is fun. You know, I've read a lot of the Philip Jose Farmer books, and they're good adventures, and you can race along in them, and you know they're fun. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, this is something that I, well, I've already listened to it and read it and heard the radio play you know mm-hmm. it's there's a lot of stuff in this story so now uh, there's something in that radio play i'm pretty is, is it uh, did i miss it am i crazy didn't they add a scene where they show all the dead people no that's not an added scene that's in it's, the book okay it's I, in the book, I'm, I'm 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 missing i mean it. story so okay why why is that stand out so much more in the audio drama then um, I mean, I think, it's way shorter. Obviously, it's a half hour versus the uh, two hours of the audiobook, right? Yeah, the in the scene in the radio drama, um, you come at it more directly, mm. um, and there is you can hear the shock and amazement in the voices of mm. the characters in the radio play. Uh, whereas it seems a little more distant in in the text or the audio narration. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a funny thing, right? The way the audio drama works. This is by the Atlanta Radio Theater Company. They are very very early on the internet. Great um, radio drama group. They did a ton of science fiction adaptations, including some Heinlein, uh, Man Who Traveled in Elephants, and a bunch of other uh, little things. Um, yeah, they're really solid. I've I really like heard them. a lot of their stuff, yeah, and they're they're, they're 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 a good troop. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if they're still active, but um, they they really produced a lot. This was done, I think, for two thousand nine. Uh, you, you actually hear the audience laughing at a, one of the jokes in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a very contemporaneous joke for the period, but it's still it, you appreciate what they're doing. Um, so one of the things they do is they have to get you into the story. So they've got this reporter and they sort of drop that a little bit later on, you know, no, once, no, they, they, they go through throughout. It's basically the reporter giving, giving, yeah, it's, it's the reporter's dispatches, which made me think of, I, we haven't talked about other interesting archeology span yet. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, it kind of reminds me of Babylon five in that way. Like mm-hmm. like he it's a, like a Babylon Five reporter on the yeah, scene of right. a a Zeno archaeological expedition, mm-hmm. and here's what we found. Yeah, and then the but the interview at the beginning makes it feel like uh, we're going to be there and asking questions. But I think that was just a way to because they're they, they have a lot to cover. This story is about the process of how and ba- it's basically recounting as a historical uh, device, how these discoveries happen, 
what you need is a Rosetta Stone, some way of of giving. And the lines, I guess, they're right near the beginning too. But like, they didn't lose their meaning. They don't meaning doesn't evaporate. We just don't have the key to accessing it, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's really interesting because that's it's, when I get a new magazine, somebody scanned. I'm like. I have no idea what's going to be in this, and most of the time I don't have a lot of expectations because I I don't want to raise my ex- my hopes too high, you know. But when I'm blown away, like how could this exist? I had no idea. This is like a whole world just opened up. I didn't know the people were like that at that time. Everything was happening. It's so amazing to see to see that that unlocking, and that's why it's so important. Like. Uh, you know, Paul, you know about all the um, all the Roman novels and stuff, how we got those? Uh, like, uh, there's a famous one. Uh, we're supposed to do it as a podcast at some point. Uh, the Golden Ass, you know this book? Yes, Apuleius, yes. Right. So you know how they found that? It's basically the same way as in this story. Um, there's... Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. There was a... Um, I'm, Pretty sure it was it was uh, near Pompeii, if not Herculaneum or whatever. There was a, a Roman villa, and the locals had been uh, digging there. Right, the local people, just as in the stories mentioned, had been digging, and uh, they'd find these these items that they would use. They're basically charcoal. They'd use them for fires, you know. Yeah, and. What it turned out to be was a library. <laughs> so they go, the, the local Italians would dig into the earth, find these basically charred, blackened things. There was a house fire or something, right? Um, but the books had been smoldered rather than, you know, combusted. And so what we have of almost all the, all the poetry... And uh, Roman novels, all of that stuff, it's basically pieced together from charcoal that was, you know, a bundle of wrapped up scroll that is completely carbonized, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they, there's even a joke in Hitchhiker's uh, Guide to the Galaxy about recycled as fire lighters about Bogon uh, right. documents. And that's what, yeah. that's what it's referencing. To and now. that's exactly what it was for. Is It was like, it, this is great stuff for burning because it's basically pure carbon. All you need to do is add uh, a light and it becomes a fire, right? Right. Because the oxygen's everywhere and its carbon is pure. It's a nice clean flame. Yeah, and what are you doing? You're burning <laughs> Roman you're burning, you're burning literature. Um, yeah. And we don't know how many of those books were burned, but it wasn't a few. And sometimes <laughs> there, 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 there's there's a lot that we lost. That reminds me of a Harry so Turtle Dove, Turtledove story where two time travelers go back in time to try to find some of these books before they get uh, before they get uh, recycled, and they run afoul of the local police and think. That, that with their superior technology, they can just overawe the locals and find out, yeah, the Romans aren't having any of that. Even with a gun, the Romans are still going to kick your ass. Mm-hmm. There's a great movie. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a 2009 movie called Agora. Um, oh, oh, yes. I've seen that. Yeah, great, well Rachel watching. Weiss, I think, is the star. And it's mm-hmm. a biopic of... Um, Hypatia. Hypatia of Alexandria. 
or Alexander or whatever. Alexandra, anyway, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of about the fall of the city and not exactly about the burning of the library, but it's it's about the loss of knowledge and, you know, going hyper religious and burning all the all the um all the science and it's like it's a beautiful it's a beautiful production so if you haven't seen it well or people listening you should definitely check it out i i don't know how it didn't get like a lot more attention because i thought it was it was it looks like a blockbuster style you know like it's beautiful to look at um maybe maybe it did well uh, budget 70 million box office 39 apparently not <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 because people in certain quarters, i.e., the strongly religious, took the movie as being being an attack on Christianity. Uh, and so that, well, yeah, I, I, it's I, Christians I, I, attacking I, the locals. So, um. Yeah, I, I guess that would be like a, a touchy figure for for some religious people. Although well, there there is a relig- I mean, there is a religious figure in in the story that is not in the movie that is not portrayed um sympathetically shall we say yeah it's it's basically like witch burnings before witch burnings yeah yeah i I mean they they killed her they executed her right like that's yeah i think so it's been a while like that's what happened to the real like historical figure of alexandra yeah and just the fact that that's kind of a similar story it's about um the uh, it's uh, everybody's seen the cover of the february 1957 issue i love that there is a surveyor in the background there um, I don't know if uh, Astounding did all sorts of weird stuff. Like Campbell was kind of a weird guy. In the top left-hand corner of the cover, there's like a symbol, and he did that like a lot in the '50s. There was like this transition. He put scientific symbols that nobody'd ever seen before, <laughs> uh, like just on the cover, and then he'd explain it on the table of contents. Um, but uh, I take that image of the guy in the turban in the background or whatever he is um those are i take that as the symbolic of what is coming whereas in the foreground we've got the the three people thinking she's i love her hands one is on her face right she's thinking the other one she's playing with her pencil you can see like she's got her finger between uh sort of interleaved between the the pencil and in the background we've got the surveyors like when the archaeologists are usually called in real life is when they're bulldozing shit right and then (laughs) and there's some law that says oh shit now we have to call the archaeologists and do uh, a survey and make sure that we're not destroying anything more than we've already just destroyed and i think they're that's what's why they're there right is they're there as they're going to take over the city. It's going to call, they got a name for it. Right. So that's all coming. And so the science sort of allows, sorry, go for it. Go for it. Speaking of the cover, I don't mm-hmm. know if the same person did the story yeah, illustrations. Um, uh, yes. Kelly freeze, I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. it's, it says illustrated by F R E A S. So I'm assuming that that is Kelly freeze. Although yes, it is Frank Kelly freeze. <laughs> yeah. Um, and anyway, I know this is F S F F audio, but if people want to look at the, uh, scan on project Gutenberg, there are some really nice illustrations, mm-hmm. uh, in that story. And they're up on the PDF page too, in the original, so you can see it in its 
pulpy glory. <laughs> I, I I don't do the OCR, but other than that, it's it's the same. And the pics the pics are really good. Um, in fact, yeah, the internal art is all by Frias as well. I think there's like four or five illustrations. Yeah, like six. Yeah. Yeah, and and the opening, we've got her our hero heroine in the uh, space helmet, right? She needs oxygen. Um, oxygen mask. Yeah. yeah oxygen mask. Uh, Being uh, on Mars. Right. I, I was kind of worried. I was kind of worried. It'd been so long since I read the book. Um, first time I reread it for us. Um, I was worried that the story was going to be not about what it ended up being about. I was worried it's going to be about Martians <laughs> <laughs> because they're on Mars and they're doing all this Martian stuff, right? And I was like, uh, uh, and then I wanted, I, I was hoping it'd been so long. I, I, I don't know how many years, 13 years or at least since I read it. Um, it'd been so long i thought maybe uh maybe that magazine is going to be like a martian version of astounding (laughs) 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 you know because they said it's probably not fiction um but it had science in the title right (laughs) so it's like science fiction and now what's funny is this is exactly true of the magazine too right astounding gets its name changed to analog an analog, for the longest time, I had no idea why it was called that. I thought, shouldn't it be called digital? That's a little more futuristic. <laughs> right, it sounds so old-fashioned right? now. <laughs> right, but at the time... <laughs> well, that's why it's called that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's an analog magazine, and we're reading it digitally, and and it's an analog for... I get it now, right? But th- that metaphor is so good as a... Like, if if that was the solution, I would be down for this just being a big joke as well <laughs> so did you uh do you remember what it said about the nature of the paragraphs in the magazine yes yes it said it was long they didn't bulky. look like fictional they were big and blocky they were maybe but, paragraphs. but that made right. me that just made me think he was making fun of uh john w campbell's editorials which could go on for pages and ran uh, basically they're like they're musings on twitter except they're long and and you know I don't think John W. Cannon could have restricted himself to 280 characters. No, but it's a thread, matter. you know, like I, uh, when I start writing thread. on Twitter. 142. Yeah, no, I don't know how many, so I just keep going. And, and often it doesn't make any sense because I'm just thinking it through, you know. Um, and that feel like, you know, when you're putting out a monthly magazine, you've got lots of other stuff to do. The fact that you have to fill out a... <laughs> fill out you have to fill out an issue with any pages that are extra you have to fill those up right and so he could do that by having a flexible sized uh editorial it doesn't have to be only two pages it can be six pages if it needs to be <laughs> and uh, this is a serious like uh, you, the guy uh, lester del rey just was bad at it right like he was running three magazines at the same time and he got fired because you know he couldn't juggle all those balls and his editorials are kind of like that too they if you if you have it's like being a weekly columnist a lot of them are terrible right (laughs) they gotta write a lot and they have to do it consistently and they have to fill space it's like essay writing i teach for students too it's like you're the very first thing we need to know is what the word count is what right so we can expand it and make it bigger if it's too small 
cutting it's no problem it's the making it fill up that to the required 5000 words that you're required to do so i i don't feel like this book is is that but <laughs> but the john w campbell section of the magazine definitely was those big blocky uh, sections of paragraphs, and they say, "Why is there a tr- paragraph here suddenly changing to another paragraph?" It's the same paragraph with a little indentation, right? But yeah, uh, it turned out to be about metallurgy. <laughs> so, so Jesse, so how do you feel the story fits in the tradition of xenoarchaeology in science fiction? Uh w- w- what other ones are you saying? Well, yeah, yeah, like, like, how do, how, how do you see this as? Uh, as predecessor and antecedent to other well, science fiction archaeology. I, I, I guess the most famous xenoarchaeology story, maybe the best one too, is by Clark, the star, you know. Uh, that's the one. It's It was adapted to an episode of the 80s right. Twilight Zone, I think, or maybe it was Outer Limits. Um, and it basically... They, hey, hey, Jesse? Yeah, yeah? The The... The the kids these days they don't read Arthur C. Clarke. So, I know. <laughs> so if you want to if you want to give us a blurb, I'm absolutely uh, give you a blurb for the star. Uh, it's about a priest who uh, he's a actually I did a show on it for reading short and deep. It's about a, a Jesuit who's on a spaceship. They're returning to Earth after finding a wonderful civilization that uh, was built a monument to their culture on the their version of Pluto after their star was going to go Nova, they decided to move their museums to this place and they recorded all sorts of videos and uh, library materials and everything you would want to know about a culture. Mm -hmm. And at the edge of this, uh, on, on this planet, they find a radioactive beacon that tells them that, that that's there. And, and he's headed back to earth. It's a very short story. And he explains, um, uh, I've just discovered something terrible. Um, I don't want to tell my colleagues. They're going to laugh at me and make fun of me for being a priest and also a Jesuit. And, and it's also shaken my faith to its core. And basically what he found out was that this wonderful culture, amazing, stupendous, um, was destroyed by the supernova that was the star of Bethlehem. And so God... Uh, sacrifice, sacrifice these people to the fire so that Jesus could be, you know, anointed on earth or whatever. Not anointed. Born on earth. And uh, it's a great, great story because um, it, uh, it there's, there's a line right at the beginning, very easily missed. I didn't miss it. I feel like a super genius about the name of the computer he's recording it into. And it's a Mark 6 computer. And, of course, Mark 6 <laughs> is a line from the Bible. You can look it up. Um, uh, but you may know this story because it was adapted to probably the best episode of Next Generation. And in that episode oh, yeah. is called The Inner Light. Right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now, is it an archaeological story? No, not exactly. But it is the idea of... You know, we've underst- they wanted us to understand their stuff. They left a key for us to see them and appreciate what they did. And the universe or God didn't care about them. Um, and But the meaning is there. It's just there to be discovered. As long as we don't, you know, burn these things, we don't throw them out or lock them away until they rot, we can 
discover what they said and and be enriched by it. It's about treasure. That's the way I always think of it. Like, I've got all this treasure. I want to share it with everybody. Don't you want to share my treasure? And some people say, no, that treasure's mine. You can't have it. <laughs> my own, my precious. <laughs> That's right. I, 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 this is an infinitely uh, replicable uh, ring of power. Everybody can have one. <laughs> just was, don't lock I it was, down, Gollum. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking I was thinking bigger than just the star, the star Wars. I think I was thinking of like say rendezvous with Rama or Yeah, that's a the, that's a archaeological story of a, the, 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 a lot of the novels of Jack McDevitt fall into this. There's a Ellie Modisit novel where basically a, a interstellar civilization finds this wandering planet that's frozen in the interstellar dark that had a civilization on it, so they try to do archaeology at 250 degrees below zero, hmm. which is real, real, and they try to figure out what this civilization was while they can, which is pretty interesting. I like the uh, it's, it's xenoarchaeology fascinates me because we can't know really what what we'd actually find if we actually found the ruins of an interstellar civilization because we're not even all really off our own planet. But mm-hmm. um, there's uh, there's uh, there's also I mean there's also uh, the Arthur C. Clarke story names escaping a moment where which basically inspired two thousand one where basically they they say they found a moon oh, base the Sentinel the Sentinel thank you where they find the moon base and. Basically, they have to use atomic weapons to get into it, and they basically destroy it in getting into it. But they send the signal out somewhere, and it's like, oh, okay, we 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 contacted somebody in doing this, but we don't know what. But that, that, that seemed like, oh yeah, we're gonna use a hammer to smash the egg and have to look at the contents afterwards. Just sounded like Clark saying, yeah, that's not the greatest way to go about learning about something else. I think it was a take that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. For a modern archaeological adjacent science fiction series, I highly, <clears throat> excuse me, I highly recommend Christine Catherine Rush's Diving Universe oh, oh yeah, diving series, into the wreck. Yes. Yes. starting with Absolutely. Diving into the Wreck. And the basic idea is this woman and her crew explores old wrecked spaceships um, and also sites on planets sometimes uh, uh, looking at evidence of lost civilizations. Nice. Yeah, I, I mentioned Babylon 5 before, which where there's plenty of elder races and plenty of archaeological sites that they keep running into. And Yeah, running- there's a, a Babylon 5 comic book that's in canon. Uh, again, uh, Will... Web 1.0, Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5, great website. Tells you all sorts of good stuff. Like that, it, it's such a good resource. Still exists, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, it does. Because when we were doing the Babylon 5 rewatch and Skipping and Fanti, Mike, Sean, and I would reference that every episode. It was so, amazing. Yes. It was amazing because uh, it basically people would have questions and it was like talking to J. Michael Straczynski in real time almost. DC Comics had a, I think it was an eight-issue run or something like that, that was a prequel to some of the stuff that's in the issue with on Mars, you know, archaeology on Mars. And uh, what's the security off Garibaldi? It's yeah. like, uh, oh, yeah, the, what do they uncover on Mars? Oh, yeah, it's the shadows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And it was in canon. Right, so it's like it's part of the actual story. It's not, you know, when they have the DC comic of Star Trek, where all sorts of cool stuff happens, and then they start a new show, and it's like, no, none of that happened. Forget <laughs> about that. Or a Star Star Wars books, right? You get all these great characters. Except, no, no, sorry, nothing. 
no, 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 no longer, no longer canonical. Yeah, they, they, they never decanonized a lot of that stuff, so it's still official. No Mara Jade. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I, I know the Marge, Mara Jade. Why didn't they? Why didn't they just adapt the Thrawn? You know, you know, trilogy. The one with these um, Thrawn books. Yeah, yeah, that would have been good. It would have been, been fine. Real. It would have. It could have been epic, right? Why not? There was a, there was a whole. I mean, I mean they used series. They, 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 they they adapted. I mean, they they put Thrawn into the video games because at one point, I mean, because I they're the smart. Fighter, you're, <laughs> they're smart. You're running. You're running because you're run, You're basically working for Thrawn and Tie Fighter for a bunch of it's like. Okay. So yeah, lost opportunity. This is all going over Will's head. <laughs> no, I actually used to read all those expanded universe okay, novels. Uh, yeah, yeah. When I was. Um, I mean, before I was born, I was reading them. Right, right. <laughs> reasonable. Yes, born, you know, uh, about a year ago. But uh, the uh, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the canon of Zeno archaeology, um, uh, Dan Simmons Hyperion comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. that's like like you know a big novel where Zeno archaeology is really uh, central to what's going on. On uh, character gets. Uh, weirdly infected with uh uh aging backwards so there's like a, a benjamin button thing and <laughs> yeah xeno archaeology it's uh i Night, mean Nightfall. it's like a neat uh, oh say again uh isaac asimov's nightfall that sort of plays a role it's not xeno archaeology except they're aliens so i guess it is xeno archaeology uh, th- yeah but basically them seeing yeah how they find, uh, they find that they yeah that they, they they seem to be suffering these cycles where Everything burns down after a certain amount of time. Every fourteen hundred years, our our society destroys itself. I wonder what's causing this. Um, too bad we we never have nighttime. <laughs> we'll never know any sleep. Um, so yeah, Isaac Asimov does a little bit of that in Nightfall. There's a few. There's a few out there that are about arc. You know, um, a few. There's a few. About archaeology. Oh, I guess in Larry Niven's um, and Jerry Purnell's book, that's the same, oh, similar, right? The uh, uh, the hand oh, ring what's, world. No, no, what's no, the wait, hand no, one? Not ring world. I'm so sorry, <laughs> Paul. You know the one I'm talking about. It's uh, with the guys, the Modis, Moten God's Eye. Oh, yeah, the Moten God's Eye. Yeah, right. Ah. They're, they're basically revealing themselves. hoping, but even in just Larry Niven that we did, Jesse. I mean, there's the, there's 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 the. Uh, there's the Batavs and uh, the other and the uh, and the other the ancient races. Um, the protect, mm-hmm. yeah, protector yeah, species. Protector species has that. And- right, and, and 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 there's a, and there's a slaver boxes. Yeah, slavers. It's really in, important to think about why archaeology is is important, and basically it's it's studying ourselves, right? It's like, what's the history of what we did? How how does how does it stuff happened? How do we get to where we are? What mistakes did we make? What did mom do? <laughs> you know, like what did what did mom do? What did mom uh, do? She threw her magazines into a locker in the bottom of the house, and then fifteen thousand years later, fifty thousand years later, some human came to the planet and said, "Hey, mom, put all my comic books in the basement." <laughs> <laughs> right? So, I mean, um, it's important. Yeah, well, I think it's like like archaeology is like bound to be a central feature, like in the science fiction tropes uh, coming out of like uh, the like 
uh, imperialist literature and the imperialist fantasy literature, you know, like, uh, when we're like, when the West is like coming into like every other part of the world, uh, you know, archaeology is a piece of that. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, the role archaeology plays is, uh, you know, essentially, uh, our mission is to like justify what we're doing here. Um, or like, we don't even like have to think about it like that. We're going to do that automatically. Um, so it's neat to see how it like shifts from, uh, you know, King Solomon's minds or, uh, I mean, uh, you could say that the, uh, the novel, she is like kind of about archeology. span They're not archeologists, <laughs> but they're going to an ancient location. They're like mm-hmm. looking at the ruins. It's and like, they do the something- same burning, don't they? They throw the bodies. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 That, that's a good example. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, this idea of, of finding what was and like coming back with it and maybe it's more advanced than what we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's just like, that's baked in from the beginning. Yeah, um, if you go to uh, YouTube and you type in, you know, weird archaeology or whatever, you can find all sorts of like people have it's kind of like uh you know conspiracy q and on stuff except it's it's for archaeological stuff like there's um there's some like, clearly clearly the and they go through like a they're in a museum in Egypt right and it says clearly this was cut with a a circular saw right and it's like the evidence is pretty interesting. I mean, it's com- pretty compelling those do look like circular saw cuts and then you find the stuff like um, well, we're pretty sure this is batteries in ancient, uh, ancient uh, Babylon. And it's like, how, how do we know it's not batteries? It sure looks like batteries. That's how batteries work. Well, they're not using, they're probably doing it for electroplating, but did they do that? Like, that's the really cool stuff is, is we don't like the, what's the Antikythera mechanism, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that it's ancient some, computer clock. It's yes. something, guys. We know it's something, but what what we we know it to be and what we can prove are not exactly the same thing, right? So, like, we have stories of, you know, great inventors. Uh, this guy, what's what's the guy, the weapon inventor, Paul, who used the... Archimedes. Archimedes, yeah. Oh, he's the one who did the death ray, right? <laughs> yeah, he's supposedly like, did the death ray with the mirrors against Rome. Dude, I don't think it's impossible. I think no, it's not. I no, think it's it is poss- possible. It's possible enough. Yes. I think it's possible. If you have a really sunny day and you have enough mirrors, you can totally fry shit. Um, on the have other you hand, this guy Hephaestus, he was an alien that came to Greece <laughs> and pretended to be a god. Well, <laughs> he, oh, he was an owl. <laughs> A mechanical owl that can talk to. I mean, we have the we have only the records of the stories and only the records of what people said about this stuff. We don't generally have like Archimedes screw. We don't have Archimedes, you know, death ray. But we do know that some things are possible, and we also know like Greek fire. Right? It was a thing they were all worried about, and we still don't know exactly what those components are. We we have we have a good idea, but we're not entirely certain what Greek fire was. Because it can Greek burn fire underwater, Paul. Because it was used as late as the 
14th century. And nobody's so, writing it, the recipe down for us uh, in a way that... Well, yeah, because it was a secret. Because they didn't want, they, they, they didn't want their enemies to get a hold of it. So it was, it was closely guarded. I don't you know. You weren't actually uh, publish it. You think about, like, nuclear... nuclear uh, this is one w- way I interest uh, boys uh, when I'm tutoring. I, I get a new boy student, and they're like, all oh, they hate school, they hate learning. I say, hey, let's learn how to make nuclear bombs. I'm going to show you. You want to know how to make a nuclear bomb? I'm going to show you. So I, I show them, you know, on paper how you do it. I said, now your big, your biggest problem here, young man, is you're going to have to get a whole lot of uranium. <laughs> but once you get enough uranium, you refine it, make sure it's pure. Um, what you want to do is you want to slam, <laughs> you know, usually using conventional explosives. Uh, a, a uranium rod into a into basically a a ball with a hole cut out that's slightly sli- slightly too small for the rod, and they're slamming together hard enough. That'll do the job. That'll kill everybody you hate. And they're like, oh, <laughs> great. Now, luckily, uranium of that refinement is hard to get, so I haven't actually made any monsters, but. You see, my point is like that knowledge is available to everybody, right? It's just nobody writes it down. Um, there's an In Our Time podcast about uh, the tale of Sinuhe, which is an ancient Egyptian saga. Mm-hmm. And they, um, in, during that, it, it's an interesting podcast, um, an interesting saga about a man who, uh, leaves his home goes and lives somewhere and finally honor calls him back home um but uh they said that there are so many copies of it because it was set as a schoolboy mm-hmm. exercise you mm-hmm. know copy out passages from that's this right. this book <laughs> so that's why it, it you know that's why that one you know it was easily mm-hmm. available because there were so many you know scraps of papyrus with copies of that's that exactly right and you know we know we know that lovecraft m- wrote more than than we have right it, we just don't have copies of it some a lot of his like there's a number of his stories and essays and stuff they're just letters somebody took two letters uh where he, uh, there's one i was talking with evan about yesterday first published in 1944 you know long after he's dead it's called Some Notes on Fairyland. It's a not really an essay. It wasn't designed to be that. It was him just talking about fairyland in two different letters. And if those two letters didn't... And we have lots of... You know, there's lots missing. Mm-hmm. So if, if we had more, we would have more. But we only have what we have. And it's not necessarily the best stuff either. Right? The most popular magazines today are not going to be the ones that we want to read in 20 years. Um, because it's it's like newspapers; they're designed to be ephemeral. Nobody nobody wants to explain anything and just use it to wrap your fish. So we're lucky to have anything, I guess. But that that's why you know being an archaeologist is exciting. It's like it's like ex- exploring where you don't have to go and kill and enslave and poison people. But, with your but on the other hand, you need those native laborers, though, right? That's true. That. You know, that, I thought that <laughs> was cheap interesting. Labor. I, I thought that was interesting because who who is the cheap labor in this story? There is none. There's the machines. Oh well, there's the soldiers, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're uh, they're in, they're uh, 
you know, most of them are not civilians. Most of them are there not because they want to be. They're not there for academic, uh, you know, posturing. They're there because they were assigned to go there. They're happy to help break down a door. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Sachiko's there to oil her gun. (laughs) Well, that's required. She's, you know, and also, was it in the audio drama as well? Or I can't remember now. It's very mixy. But isn't there a point in the story where they start to get worried about ghosts? No. No? They don't, don't remember anything they, about uh, that. They're like uh, looking over like their shoulder. There's a couple lines. Yeah. Yeah, in the story, there's a couple lines where they're like, oh, I feel like there's still people here. Well, yeah. well yes. They're worried about ghosts. And at one point, they start moving in together, right? Even though That's they have right. all the space in the world. Oh, yes. I don't think they're really worried about ghosts. They just <laughs> think it feels kind of eerie. Well. Yeah, yeah and, and they're, not, they're not practicing good social distancing and they want the pen. I want to I wanna also connect you. This is not an archaeological story exactly, but um, if everybody hasn't already read The Scarlet Plague by Jack London, everybody should do that. Not just because we're doing uh, a plague of our own right now, but rather because um, there's a great scene, a number of great scenes. One of the great scenes in there is when he's telling his grand- great-grandkids uh, who he is ashamed of and also made fool of by, uh, about or it's maybe his grandkids uh, about the time before uh, he says you know we sheltered in the university for a while right and they there's a scene basically that's very similar to what we see here uh, you know they're barring the doors and they're ravishing the the grounds and trying to hold back the the horror in a style like uh, the mask of the red death you know it, the death cannot be come in. Don't let the infected come in. Um, and it doesn't work. And they flee. And, of course, they die, except for those who are immune. And it's like the mystery in this of what killed the Martians is never, it's never revealed, right? We never find out what killed them, other than the few that are in, you know, yeah, they, they, the, the, the last few suicide when I was thought about the end of Piper himself. But the oxygen, the oxygen in the atmosphere seems to have been part of it, maybe, or maybe that. Was... Well, 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 no, well, clearly Mars is drying out because they talk about canals mm-hmm. and this. This used to be a seaport, so they're they're clearly going with the with the kind of Mars that dries out and no yeah, one becomes and habitable. You have to also remember this is uh, in fifty seven. They did not yet have any satellite stuff of Mars yet. It's going to be uh, another decade before they do get the first stuff. Oh, what was the Pioneer? Was that the first one? I don't know. Anyways. No, no, not Yeah. I mean, so the, all that Mars stuff is, uh, you know, it's, they're pretty sure it's not uh, alive, like, because they're looking at it with telescopes. It's, it doesn't seem to have any green on it. So it's going to be a dead, it's going to be like uh, Barsoom. Uh, I'm pretty sure about that. But maybe once, right? And so the story isn't really about the death of the Martians, but it feels like it's a much bigger story than it is because of the potential of all those books, of the potential of understanding what happened. And is it a reflection of what's going to happen to us? Because I, I don't feel like uh, that's what Piper is doing. He isn't saying... The Martians are us. This isn't an ecological Earth is in bad shape story. It feels no, like the opposite. Not. Like they're still yeah. vigorous and expanding after World War II, you know. Yeah, because but, this is the beginning. Of, but there's this great line. 
He's about how you know it's a robust and and powerful uh, uh, society is because they have magazines. <laughs> well, no, no, but, but 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 that's also true. If you have the time for for realities like that, you're you're not hard scrabbling to survive. But my point right. my point is is our society, you know, magazines are in massive decline. Right? Like Canada's <laughs> yeah. national magazine went digital. Come on, we're in deep trouble if if that okay. is the. If that, uh, well, maybe, if you've seen Time Magazine lately, <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, physical magazines on this on the stands are dying, but, but web, but websites, you know, website clickbait websites are doing gangbusters. <laughs> oh, good. Up today, <laughs> no, no. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, we have we have the time for that nonsense because we're not we're not dying because the sands are clogging up uh, Vancouver it's Harbor not, because the girls dying exactly. Out. It's not sands that are clogging it up. It's something else. But well, that's a different. That's, but a that's different my point: thing. is that this isn't it, it. This isn't a story that's a, a, a. You know, like what's cool about Star Trek is that the stories aren't really about aliens; they're about us generally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Whereas this is actually a story about not about um, reflecting back on you know uh, politics in the United States in the 1950s. It's not about that. It's about the actual process of understanding, uh, another language and how you would do it. And the way you do that is you find things that you recognize and then you put words to them. And then that's all that it's really about. And then there's some characters too, (laughs) and there's a setting and it's cool, but it's about more than anything. It makes it the hard SF part. It, it isn't a metaphor. It isn't a, a simile. There's nice language, but that's not what it is. It's about the process, about the progress of how you get meaning out of a bunch of letters that you don't recognize. You could learn another language is what it's saying. And you can almost do it even if you don't have a native speaker. And that's amazing if you have the records. I love how kind of inherent to that of you know finding the meeting the meaning is that the uh, story in several places uh, shows the value of coming things coming at things from different perspectives uh-huh. from Gloria Standish uh, being excited about the magazines when uh, Martha is starting to get discouraged because she says you know I, I don't care what the magazine said just the fact that these people had magazines right shows that they're kind of like us in a way. Yep. And then later, Martha, who's a linguist primarily, uh, at least by inclination, she knows just enough science to recognize the periodic table uh, in, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that is what unlocks uh, the language for everybody. Mm-hmm. Even more so than the mural, right? Right, even more than that. Yeah, the mural's cool, but it's not. It's not a you know. It doesn't. It's not the same. Like this is this uh, not mentioned so far in the show, and and not mentioned in the thing because they weren't really doing it with SETI, right? Uh, search for extra, terrestrial intelligence mm-hmm. and how we're going to understand what aliens are trying to tell us, and obviously. If we're talking about that, we should mention the Ted Chang story, Exhalation. Oh, not Exhalation. Um, or mention the Voyager, you know, probe. Yeah, the Voyager the, probe. The work discs. that they put into sure. <laughs> the, or, the golden the plates with the pictures to... of the man and the woman and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's the, what's um, the, what's the Ted Chang movie that came out? Arrival? 
arrival, I'm, right? So that that's you know communication as well in the same way, except we've got yeah, aliens. It's the, 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 the story of your life is the, the story. Stories, stories of your mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. That sounds right. That sounds right. Have you all seen the SETI stuff where they have like um, people who are like trying to take like an anthropological approach to researching dolphins to try to like can we like figure out how to communicate with dolphins? No, I, I don't think so. Yeah, they I haven't have, they... read about that from a SETI perspective. No, no. Yeah, no. SETI, uh, SETI's into that because they're like, okay, well, uh, we should practice on sea mammals. Yeah, that's because... uh-huh. that sounds good. <laughs> they're basically like because they're like intelligent as we know, like as far as we know, they're intelligent, and uh, you know they can human. use symbological thoughts, if I recall correctly. Definitely, definitely. Um, uh, the when they listen to the whales, um. You know, the whales, they have pretty good hearing, so they can, like, hear that you're on a boat listening to them. So mm-hmm. when the whales sing to each other, they do, like, a different kind of song that sounds like people talking. They mm-hmm. riff off e- off of each other. Yeah. Well, they're, uh, you know, it comes down, like, they're definitely communicating. Whether it's a language that they're using or not, I mean, there's a, there's a great story. This is, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, di- I was talking to somebody yesterday about great stories. Uh, maybe a narrator I was trying to convince to record a bunch of stuff. I was like, hey, check this out. There's one by Olaf Stapleton. It's called The World of Sound. Um, and it's basically the, the premise is uh, a guy doesn't like music that much, goes to the theater to hear a concert. And it uh, it's Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> um, he closes his eyes and he just listens. But if you remember Peter and the Wolf... Uh, the way it goes, right? It has a sort of a. There is a story behind it, right? Uh, no, no, yeah. yeah and then the character has a theme, exactly and right. And there's threatened. There's a threatening character, and obviously they do this in movies, like with Star Wars. You have a character who gets his own theme, and right. But the thing is, is it actually sort of tells the story, and the in in a world of sound, he falls asleep. Uh, at the concert, and yet he's sort of half awake, and so he has this experience, basically like uh, we have in the Elf Trap by um, Francis Stevens, or what's that other one uh, where there's a lady in a drop of water? I can't remember. Uh, anyways, uh, that's uh, Fitz Fitz James O'Brien, um, the Diamond Lens. That that's the story. We haven't done that one on the podcast, but basically he falls in love with a with a lady uh, who is in this fantasy world of another dimension well, 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 and it's Pygmalion music. Spectacles. Yeah. Um, it, it, Pygmalion I spectacles bought, is bought. the most uh, recent one. Yeah, that's exactly. So y- you fall in love with a lady who's in another dimension. Um, it turns out, uh, uh, you know, he just wakes up at the end of the concert cause everybody's getting up, <laughs> right? It's like, how, how can you translate, uh, can you translate a, a music and song uh, especially wordless into language, no, you can't really because it doesn't. If it has grammar, does that like what does it all mean? It's really cl- unclear, but they're definitely doing something. This is not like a dog barking at another dog or a dog barking at a truck, it's a little more complex than that, um, especially how they go on and on. It's, it's probably more like epic poetry. You know, or or a a whole um, uh, an orchestra, 
an orchestral performance, right? It's not, it's something big, but we do not have access to it in the way they do. And maybe that's just, we need to spend more time in the water. I don't know. What are, what are the, what, uh, uh, what are they getting out of it? I mean, uh, I think at this point it's like mostly just like, uh, exciting to do. Mm. Um, with the dolphins, that's what uh, I mean. Have like, this, have they found yeah, anything? Yeah, with the dolphins, they have this like uh, little device that has like four symbols on it, and like they've taught the dolphins that like you know each symbol represents like some different activity that the dolphins can do with the people. Mm-hmm. So they they say, "What do you want to play?" Yeah, basically, and so like if they want to play with like. Uh, I'm forgetting what items they actually had, so I'm just going to make up a hula hoop. They weren't actually playing with hula hoops. Mm-hmm. Like, if they want to play with a hula hoop, uh, the dolphin will go, like, press the square that, like, is hula hoop oriented, mm-hmm. and, like, they will be rewarded with a hula hoop. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, uh, you know, the Alex the Parrot, very famously, you know, if you all know who that is, um, it's the most common one. Alex the Parrot, you know, you could pick a, the lady, her, his owner, Handler, could pick up uh, something from a tray and say what material, and the bird would answer, you know, that's wood, or just wood. And uh, what material, what matter, she would say. And metal, right? The bird can can ask complex, you can ask it complex questions, and it can respond in a sort of a baby-level communication. And it's re- it is language. But the thing is, is there's no culture there. Right, it's it's like your dog. You can totally make your dog you tell communicate with your dog. Dog can communicate with you, but not with language. Right? You say ball, <laughs> and they know that means that's you know ball. <laughs> they know that's associated walkies. Oh my god, that's exciting, right? <laughs> but um, why are you always but- doing that with your foot? <laughs> it's not going to be a question that you can get answers from your dog with. And, and he's probably, because uh, yeah, no, they don't have not. that going, but what a dolphin's got going, it's probably not language and it's not communication. It's something else. And we are, we don't have it. That's why we, we're not doing it. Is that's probably all it is, right? We need to, we need to be dolphins and not be humans to understand it or find a way to be dolphins. Or yeah. Octavia whales. Butler does that in wild seed. You can just, their character right? just becomes uh, a dolphin and like lives with dolphins for a while. Um, but uh, the uh, with the uh, with both the whales and the dolphins, um, they have some kind of like system set up to characterize the different kinds of noises they make, and mm-hmm. they like kind of metaphorically refer to that as grammar. But they get a lot of like real nastiness, both from like the other biologists and from the linguists about like <laughs> doing that. Cause mm-hmm. they're like, well, this isn't grammar. I have, you know, well, make uh, up so- a word for it until you figure out what it is. That's what you do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, obviously I'm, uh, very interested in the like fantastic idea that we could talk to animals, but, um, you know, we're, uh, We'll see. We, uh, you talk to your dog all the time. It's just yeah, either... but I, I don't talk with my dog, right? Like that's <laughs> right. no, no. But you can commune with your dog. You can spend Absolutely. time. And uh, honestly, uh, my mom's got what, four dogs now. Oh my god! Um, and they have different personality, and you can communicate with them in different ways. But one of them, the only time his eyes really light up, 
is when I've got the ball in my hand and he looks at me and so happy. It's like just the purest joy. And then I know he's thinking thoughts that are, you know, they're expressed on his body and his face. He's got stuff to say. He's got emotions he wants to communicate, but there's this gap between what he can say and what I can understand. Maybe he thinks the same thing about you. Like he looks at you (laughs) and says, you know, I know this like dumb creature wants to like give me the correct body language right now, but he just like can't. Uh, The the problem, I, I, I think, I think they must be much more isolated you know, like, uh, think about, our, uh, there was a great video of uh, an orangutan at the zoo uh, washing her hands, you know, because she saw the yeah, humans yeah, right, washing her hands. Yeah, yeah, because she saw the workers doing that. Right? Um, orangutans, you know, they don't live in groups, um, you know, so they're they're not, like, constantly checking with each other to see what's fashionable and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> but... There's got to be some something between them, you know. You think about thrushes and the way they sing so much. God damn, it's a lot going on there, bud. It's not all about you know attracting mates and stuff. It's not all about that. And the the theories that you know whales are singing love songs to each other all day, you know, probably probably something to that, but. It's not only about that. I think they also like it just as poetry. <laughs> something to do because you got no hands. <laughs> I mean, dogs. It's something to do because you got no hands. Dude, the that's, dogs. That's, anthropos- that's anthropocentric. The whales don't miss hands. <laughs> the dogs, dogs only have the one hand, which is the mouth, right? So it's it's the kisses, it's the bites, it's the it's the everything. That's why God's uh, dogs look up to us as gods because we have three mouths. Got the right <laughs> mouth, the hand on the right, and the left hand, uh, which is also a, ha- a mouth, and then we got the regular mouth, and only one of them is for eating, right? We're we're fucking aliens to dogs, yo. Oh yeah, we've been experimenting on them for like tens of thousands Definitely. of years. Yeah, Their yeah, whole we're... species being is like created by us, and we we encourage behaviors and discourage behaviors, but. You know, we're the like, long-lived elves, and dogs are the short-lived humans. It's definitely something. Yeah. We're, we're definitely. I mean, if if you got inside dog culture, somehow got inside their language and what <laughs> they're talking to to each other with smells and farts and you know glandular stuffs and barks and whinnies and whatever else they're doing, they'd be like totally conspiratorial. Like they're controlling us. They, they're experimenting on their sometimes they take us to places and they operate on we're definitely the bad guys in their scenario and yet, and <laughs> oh, yet yeah well, no i don't think we're bad guys i think we're just like we're, we're, we're i think you had it right we're, we're we're like the gods we're the we're the we're we're the we're the elder race we're the uh primordials to there's the um there's a novel that that this reminds me of a uh, barsk by lawrence shonen where basically Humankind has fallen, and what's left in the galaxy are basically uplifted, uplifted animals, which are basically now sentient, and they're basically just like doing things and running planets. And there are no humans left until one of the one of them, a fant, which is basically an anth- a intelligent anthropoized elephant, finds some humans. So, and it's like, oh my god, these are the elders! Like, oh no, what what do we do now? 
that, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you look at like like elder gods or like elder species and like not see the bad guys though. Like I've been reading um, Zechariah Sechin, like the the twelfth planet, like ancient astronaut theory. Mm-hmm. And like, th- like I just read that for fun. I don't actually believe in that. But uh, <laughs> need the, the disclaimer uh, there. I mean, yeah, but it's like all these ancient astronaut guys just like they like worship the Anunnaki. They're like they taught us so much. They taught us so much, and it's like under your own account of this, the Anunnaki came to Earth. People were doing fine before, and then they invented slavery. Like, like you say they weren't doing fine. We were like cavemen or whatever, but like we were doing fine. And then the aliens came and, like, made us their slaves and, like, taught us how to cook bread. Like, that's that, that's what this book is about. Um, uh, and, yeah, I mean, and that's what we do to dogs and, like, other kinds of animals. Yeah, I agree well, with that. We, well, we, we, are def- we are definitely doing it, though. See, the, I'm pretty sure the ancient astronauts is bullshit because there's a story by well, Jack yeah. London that comes out the year before the first ancient an- astronaut stuff. And that happens so many times. Somebody comes up with a theory that they say, oh, this is this is happening, man, it's happening. It's because somebody heard it from somebody else who actually read the story. <laughs> well, it also makes cultural sense. I think as a, as a myth for the 20th century, it also makes cultural sense. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, you know, like people aren't ready to give up on uh, Christianity, uh, but they, like, don't, like, credibly believe in it anymore. So they, like, have to come up with, like, Christianity by other means. Yeah. And so it's, we like... call it science. Like, that's right? what it is. We call it, it, it... It's it's history, man. Just really happened. Look at the records. Um, yeah, it's, it's bullshit. But the good news is uh, we have these artifacts of science fiction, like Lester Del Rey's The Faithful, which is about uplifted dogs, right? And uh, uplifted monkeys and their trying to figure out how to run things after humans have all killed themselves off. Oh, and it's called The Faithful. The That's Faithful. so, like... Like, that just breaks me in half. That's so yeah. beautiful. You'll love it. It's 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 a breaky and halfy story. It's not well-written, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because he got there way before David Brin did, and he did it all in nine pages. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Kirby had a comic strip in the, the 50s uh, where he... Uh, um, uh, a man goes to the future... Um, and, uh, he knows the nuclear secrets, so he gives the nuclear secrets to the dogs and cats to, like, uh, wipe out the rodents or something like that, and, like, <laughs> and before, before he goes back to, like, our time, like, uh, there's this very touching interaction where, like, the dog people are like, we feel like we know you, like. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm sending you a link to the faithful to break you in half. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I. Uh, um, that's the line from The Little Prince. Like, if you tame something, you're responsible for it. Mm. Mm. That's a that's an important book. We should do a show on it. Yeah. We should do a show. If you can find a yeah, we should do it. I, I, I don't remember and That's those. why I think that ancient aliens need to give us UBI, though, if they <laughs> tamed us. Like, that's basically <laughs> what I feel about this. Is, mm. Uh, I don't know if we can get, like, Georgius, like, Sikolas, or I'm sorry to all of our Greek listeners that I can't say your surnames. Um, yeah, we got to get those people on board with this. Like, mm. the aliens need to give us UBI. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> that, that That's a very strange place to go to from Avniogel, to UBI from ancient it's a, uh, it's a pretty fruitful book for a, basically a very simple, straightforward, no metaphors story, right? 
it 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 it, it does what it does and started off two different series, so he, or at least connects to two different series of his. And it's as you said, as we said at the beginning, it's hard SF of a soft science. So mm-hmm. What's what's not what? And as, as as Trish pointed out, it's got a female protagonist. We have. Multicultural. I, I like that. That, that, that is not, not called out. It's just a fact. Lots of girls yeah. in the army. Lots of girls in the uh, in this archaeological division, and they're just folks. They just do their jobs, and they're not. But notice, they're called men. girls. They're not women. Well, <laughs> it's from 1957. Yo, give it a break. Uh, yeah, oh well. <laughs> hey, you know, boys call each other boys too. They don't call it. We don't. We don't call each other men. Sometimes. <laughs> Whatever, man. Whatever, man. Whatever, dude. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, but they, they call each other girls and they smoke cigarettes inside with like the ancient ruins of the Martians <laughs> that can never be replaced. Yeah, if if you want if you oh. want to see things that should be scolded, it's all that goddamn smoking in the in the <laughs> archaeological rooms. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio. is about is just planning the, for the weather like they you know the did you know the nazis put a weather station in uh, newfoundland no wow what? right you all how'd like how to make it a weather station in newfoundland they brought it over yeah, they set it up wait, in fact they wait, set up wait. multiple ones but well, let's save that for after the podcast <laughs> we actually should do this <laughs> all right oh okay we'll see if We'll see if everything you get your recorder going, Paul. Yeah, Nazi uh, weather stations. Am my recorder ready in Newfoundland? And they didn't discover them until the sixties. It's crazy. Uh, all right. Um, uh, do I have everything out? Yeah, there's Omnilingual. Here we go. Uh, so Jesse, uh, Paul, Will, Trish. Will has okay. slightly more episodes under his belt than Trish does. Right? How many have you been on, yeah. Trish? Three. 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 This is my fourth. Okay, yeah. And only one's come out so far, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. All right, here we go. It's kind of nice knowing that there are that many in the can, you know, just waiting oh, to... It's, it's a delight. In fact, I, I'm uh, two and a half episodes ahead in in the actual show noting, so it's, it's ah. good, yeah. Here we go.